Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. This week brings the first subject-specific episode and we will be focusing on the subject of English. But don't worry, I'm not alone in the interview hot seat as I am joined by the wonderful Nikki Way, who is an assistant principal for teaching and learning and an English teacher. But before we dive into the episode, a quick message about our sponsor. This episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by UpLearn. UpLearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use UpLearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flip learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot uk Now joining us for our first subject-specific English episode are Amy Staniforth and Stuart Pryke. Stuart is an English teacher and teaching and learning lead in a secondary school just outside of Ipswich in Suffolk. He is a Lit Drive regional advocate and has worked with Oak National Academy. He tweets at Sprite too. Amy Staniforth is an English teacher and vice principal for quality of education at a rural secondary school in Norfolk. She's also the research lead for teaching and curriculum in a multi-academy trust, and she tweets at TeachALS. Stuart and Amy's new book, Ready to Teach, A Christmas Carol, has been eagerly awaited by many English teachers up and down the land after the storming success of Ready to Teach Macbeth, which was released in October 2020. The fusing of core knowledge, the hinterland, pedagogy and resources result in excellent subject development for teachers and English departments. The teacher really can become the expert with this compendium at their side. And we explore this in full with the authors in today's episode. So, without further ado, let's dive right in to our conversation with Amy and Stuart. And welcome to Becoming Educated. And this episode will be the first of a subject-specific series, and I'm super excited. Before we get into this, I'd like to introduce you to my co-host this evening, and my co-host is Nikki. Wait, Nikki, how are you? Hello, I'm great, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very good. I must mention to listeners that a lot of the work for this episode has been done by yourself, which I'm extremely <laughs> grateful for. And before we introduce our guest today, Nikki, can you share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and, and what we're going to talk about tonight? Yes. Um, so I am currently Assistant Principal for Teaching and Learning um, at a secondary school in South Yorkshire, um, but also an English teacher, um, which is where the kind of passion and zest for, for this podcast came from. Um, eagerly anticipated um, release of the Ready to Teach a Christmas Carol, obviously on the back of um, the Ready to Teach Macbeth. Uh, just a fantastic, fantastic resource for English teachers. Um, so yeah, that that's the the kind of driving force behind the podcast and the idea for it today. So excited! 
Right, so who are we going to be talking to, Nikki? Do you want to introduce them and bring them into tonight's episode? Yes, so we have um, Stuart Pryke. Um, Stuart is an English teacher and teaching and learning lead in a secondary school just outside of Ipswich. Um, he's also a Lit Drive regional advocate and has worked with Oak National Academy. He tweets at spryke2. We also have Amy Staniforth, who is an English teacher and vice principal for quality of education at a rural secondary school in Norfolk. She is also the research lead for teaching and curriculum in a multi-academy trust. And she tweets at Teach Owls. Very excited to have them with us. Brilliant. Stuart and Amy, thanks for joining us. How are you this evening? Thank you for having us. Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to to be with you and um, get to be kind of joyful nerds about all things A Christmas Carol. No, certainly I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. As I said to Stuart off air, I've had a couple of um, views of Christmas, A Christmas Carol, but I haven't actually read it. So I'm super excited to hear about how you guys go about teaching it in, in, a, in the subject of English. So Nikki, do you want to kick us off with our discussion this evening? Yes, of course. Okay, so my first question for you both is, how did you navigate the vast hinterland of A Christmas Carol and its fascinating context of Victorian London? Um, for me, I I tend to just dive in. You know, I have a I have a kind of rough idea of, of what I need to research and, and where I want to go. Um, but I just dive in with the research and uh, for a number of reasons. Um, sometimes you end up completely where you want to be and you find everything that you want to find. And that can be that can be brilliant. Um, and other times, you know, you might end up somewhere completely different to where you expected to be with your research. Um, and that can be that can be um, fascinating. You know, there are there are so many things in this book um, and in the Macbeth one, actually. But but so much so many things in this book that I wouldn't have found if I hadn't just dived straight in sometimes you kind of end up completely in the wrong place um and then you can go off on a bit of a tangent and and you know i've learned so many things that just kind of weren't relevant to the writing of the book um but i find you know just just an article um an academic text anything that just sets off that kind of chain reaction to to then kind of what you want to find out and and where you want to go um so that's that's what i do i'm, I'm not sure about amy yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the greatest joys of writing these books is that that opportunity to, just, to dive into the, the wealth of stuff that's out there and kind of draw out the things that are going to be most relevant, you know, that we think are going to support English teachers um, in teaching the in the teaching the novella. Um, and I think part of that joy, and I, I know Stuart enjoys this as well, is uh, when we're writing one of these books is the numbers of times we text each other or ring each other up and say, I've just read the most interesting thing. Like, did you know this about Dickens or about A Christmas Carol or about workhouses or whatever it might be? And there's a real um, joy in that in finding out these these little tidbits that we didn't necessarily know before. So yeah, for me also, it, it's that diving in. Um, when we write these books, we, we plan roughly in terms of subject content so each chapter has um analysis of the text but we also look at um what kind of contextual essays we want to include in each chapter so we have that kind of guiding influence but actually as Stuart says a number of times we've then added in additional essays because we've fallen down a little rabbit hole that actually proves to be really fruitful when it comes to um to teaching the novella 
Yeah. What what recommendations would you have for teachers in trying to do the same? I often get quite frustrated um, on Twitter when you follow a link to read a research paper and, you know, you may have to pay for it or it, you require access that I just haven't got. So what would you recommend in terms of kind of sources for, for this information? I think for me, one of the very greatest things that came out of the pandemic was JSTOR, um, who started offering 100 free articles to any user. You don't have to be a, a member of an institution to be able to access that. That's been an absolute goldmine in terms of uh, resources. And particularly when it comes to the literature texts, they have a series on there where you can open up, for example, a Shakespeare text. You can open up the whole of Macbeth and each line is hyperlinked with essays that mention that line in it. And it's a really good place to start when you're looking for research papers, something that I um, I used a lot for, for both books, actually. Yeah, I agree with um, with JSTOR. That was um, a resource that we used a lot. Also, the British Library, I think, is is producing some brilliant stuff at the moment, and they really seem to have um, kind of taken a focus on on the GCSE text. So there's there's lots of stuff on Dickens, lots of stuff on A Christmas Carol, um, which is which is brilliant. But but they have it for for Shakespeare as well. So um, yeah, I'd certainly recommend the British Library alongside um, JSTOR. I also find the British Library articles are perhaps more accessible for students as well. So you can put that British Library article in front of a student and maybe do a a lesson around academic reading. Whereas obviously the JSTOR um, articles are more geared towards um, kind of university level plus as such. Um, So, so brilliant for teachers, the British Library having it for, for students, I think is, is another way into the GCSE texts too. Brilliant. Thank you, sir. Um, the book is, truly is a compendium of, of knowledge, pedagogy and resources. Can I ask which part was your favourite to write? Expanding your own knowledge of Victorian history or compiling and sharing t- tried and tested strategies? I think for me, it's the um, expanding my knowledge of Victorian history and, and also of Dickens's influences. Um, I really, really like sharing those those tried and tested strategies, but... I also really like learning new things as well. And there's so many things, as, as Amy kind of said earlier on, that we just didn't know about A Christmas Carol when we wrote this. And we rang each other up excited and said, you know, did you know it? And when we didn't, we, we questioned whether we should be English teachers or not. Um, but, you know, it, there's there's two really particular kind of niche bits in this book that I, I really like. And it's um, it's a bit in stave one where um, Scrooge goes home and, and he looks at his fireplace and there are Dickens describes these figures from scripture that are dotted around the fireplace and I've always before just kind of read that bit you know accepted they were figures from scripture and moved on um and in the writing of this book I I did my research into each of the figures to see what they were who they were what they're about what their stories were in the bible um and found some really interesting kind of fascinating things um and then the links to what happens in a christmas carol as well um, were really fascinating to to explore. Um, and Amy wrote a bit, um, which is very similar, where Scrooge is reading um, his books as a schoolboy. Um, and Amy did some research into the books and the characters that he kind of identifies with and he imagines. Um, and again, the, the kind of similarities between those characters and Scrooge were, were really fascinating. So I like things like that, those little kind of undiscovered gems, which perhaps we don't always... Um, what's the word, kind of uh, make use of, I suppose, in the classroom. We don't always exploit in the classroom. Those are my favourite bits to, to discover and then write about. 
Yes, I, I completely agree. I think it is it is those, the what sections, the kind of subject knowledge sections. And as Stuart says, you know, that section with the with the book characters, um, such a small section in, in stave two. It, it Dickens just lists six or seven book characters. Um, and we think about Christmas Carol as a book that he wrote incredibly quickly. He wrote Christmas Carol in, in about six weeks in a, a white hot fury, I think is the, the phrase that he used at the time. But the richness and the depth of what he achieves in such a short book and in such a short amount of time is incredible. And you know, as Stuart says, those tiles around the fireplace and those book character references really enrich our understanding of the novel as a whole and the characters that are in it. So, yeah, I think for me, it's the the subject knowledge development is, is my favourite bit. Can I ask then, so you've mentioned two separate areas. Is that areas that you go teach explicitly to the students to deepen their understanding of what's happening in the Novella. It's something that um, I didn't do previously. Uh, we talk about the book characters, for example, in that um, Scrooge imagines that they're his friends um, because that's all he has in his life, and we touch on in that in that respect. And we might talk about which characters we recognise from literature, um, but now it's very much deeper than that, and it's looking at just summaries. One of them he talks about is um, a character from A Thousand and One Nights, which is a, a hefty uh, piece of literature. Um, but I think it helps that kind of that hinterland knowledge that students have when they understand these characters and their influence on Scrooge and on Dickens. Um, and sometimes students will now go and read some of these other texts as well because they're interested in finding out more about who Man Friday is, for example. Um, definitely something that I'm teaching explicitly, um, increasingly. Yeah, I, I think me that's too. The, the same for us English teachers as well in that there's such a wealth of knowledge that... I definitely did not have. And just what you were saying, Stuart, about um, the reading into the um, characters, and the tiles and the characters in the books when he goes um, back to school. And I've made a little list in the back of my book of all the biblical stories that I want to reread that I read at uni a long, long time ago and never kind of made that association. And pointing that out within this book has really kind of triggered those links within my own hinterland knowledge and thought, I need to read up on that. I need to double check that. I need to go back to that and reread it to find that kind of significance that I wouldn't have really known existed. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so, no, no, sorry, sorry before you go, I, I love that little bit about kind of mentioning you're now teaching now because seeing you all light up about talking about these little nuances in the book, it's that passion for subject and, and going deeper into the stories that must really bring the whole story to life for our students because Christmas Carol is something that many people will know and watch but going deeper into understanding that and it was so fascinating that you said Amy that Dickens wrote it in, in six weeks it shows the depth and knowledge that he had bringing to the table to be able to write these books and just use these characters as you go through so thanks so much for sharing that sorry for interrupting you there Nikki if I can just just pick up on that point as well I think because there's so much because of that depth, you know, Christmas Carol, certainly as a GCSE text, I think has a little bit of a reputation as being like the easier 19th century novel because students have that background knowledge of it. Um, and, you know, I find that some schools will tend to teach um, The Sign of Four or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because they want that extra challenge. And I think if there's if there's just one thing, I suppose, that I want teachers to kind of take from that book is that actually A Christmas Carol is as equally challenging as as the other two um and you can find that challenge and pass it on to students through that that depth and detail um 
that you know hopefully we've we've presented um in in the book you definitely have yeah <laughs> okay um so in the early section of the book you briefly explore explore roland bart's essay the death of the author another one that um i haven't read since university um and his assertion that imposing an author on a text limits it with this in mind, is it possible to truly understand the powerful message of the carol without understanding Dickens himself? Such an interesting question. It's one that we grappled with quite a lot, and particularly in that section of the, the book, actually. And I'm exactly the same. So I first read um, The Death of the Author at university, and it, it was like this proper light bulb moment in terms of how I approached literature. And that's why I now share it with students in GCSE and at A-level as well, because I think it enriches their understanding of what literature is. Stuart and I talk, um, in, in fact, in both our books, about the fact that we want students to contribute to the conversation around literature because they have a valid voice as literary critics and contributing to that wider discussion. And I think understanding, even if they don't read the, the paper, understanding the concept of, of what Barth is getting at um, is really helpful in allowing them to have that kind of connection and relationship with the text Um kind of beyond what they think Dickens or Shakespeare, whoever it might be, might be up to. And, you know, when it comes to A Christmas Carol specifically, I think fundamentally A Christmas Carol is a brilliant story. Um, we went to see uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol at the Royal Albert Hall um, just before Christmas, which was really fun. And there's a little boy sat in front of us with his parents. He was probably about seven or eight. And it was clearly the first time he'd experienced the story. And he was just so engaged with what was happening and slightly scared by the ghost of Christmas yet to come. When the ghost of Christmas yet to come appeared, he turned to his dad and said something like, I don't like where this is going. And that, that kind of engagement with the story was, it was so, so beautiful, that kind of naivety with it. So I think, you know, that's one one facet of it. And I think without knowing about Dickens' um, intention more specifically, I think it does still teach us a lot about the you know truths about ourselves and about society and about how we approach others and how we look after other people as well. But actually above that, I think if we do look to Dickens and his purpose, we really enrich the story on another level because we see Dickens's anger at society and his frustration at treatment of the poor coming through in that in that novella. Um, you know, he talks and there's a great British Library article actually that summarises some of his purpose and some of the letters that he wrote at the time. But um, he wanted to write something that would strike a sledgehammer blow was the phrase that he used on behalf of of poor children. Um, he was, I think the phrase was, he said he was perfectly stricken down by reading a report into the conditions of women and children working in the mines. Um, and I think understanding that just gives us that depth of understanding. So that's not really an answer, Nikki, is it? Because I'm saying that like we can understand the depth of it without thinking about Dickens, but he just brings this this whole new level, I think, to what we teach and how we teach it and why we teach it. Stuart, have you got anything to, to add to, to that? Um, I, I think Amy's explained it quite well, actually. I mean, I think, you know, just picking up on the last thing she said, it's not it's not really an answer to the question, but we are incredibly lucky because Dickens made no secret about kind of what he thought about society and the way that society was treating the poor. Um, so we have all of these sources, letters, um, kind of conversations that he's had with with his friends and, and the people that he conversed with um, during his time that, that kind of do give us an indication as to what he was really thinking when he wrote A Christmas Carol. Um, and looking at those sources is, is really fascinating and actually bringing them into the classroom as well. Cause I'm sure we've all had, um, 
you know, those students who say, oh, did, did the author really mean this? Is, is this, you know, did he really mean to put in this symbol and this, uh, this kind of message? And I think, actually, when you when you have those extra sources, we can just say to them, yeah, he, you know, he did, you know, perhaps, um, you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about are kind of the interpretation, interpretations of the reader. Um, but those kind of surviving sources of, of his, his purpose are really useful, too. But I'm very aware that's that wasn't really an answer to your question. I've just gone off on a tangent there, but <laughs> it's quite easy to do that. I was just thinking. My absolute favourite chapter in the book is uh, chapter fifteen, an obscure part of town, um, and I love the ideas that you've got in there. Um, I think you men you credit um, Fee Brewer um, for the uh, Gin Lane illustration and how we can use um, Charles Booth's maps of London. Um, and I, that it fascinates me, Victorian uh, London and England. It's my favourite period of time. Um, so that chapter I adore. And just using those sources and bringing them in, um, it kind of relates to a question that we're going to ask later on, but how useful that is for students to see and make those links and understand the purpose kind of um, behind what's being written. Um, yeah. I've, I've found very useful, very useful. And, and I think we just need to, I just need to do a special shout out to Fee actually, because she, that was based on a lit drive um, CPD talk um, that she delivered. Um, and yeah, I'd never heard of these maps before, Charles Booth's maps, never seen them, hadn't, um, yeah, just hadn't heard of them. Um, and I spent hours afterwards just poring over them, um, kind of comparing there's a if you go on the website there's there's a, a a slider thing that you can look at so you can see the the map of london in victorian times compared to modern day um and yeah just just absolutely fascinating but uh fascinated by them um and then yeah the fact of bringing in gin lane as well with those maps um and then we bring in the arthur morrison novel as well and and students can then really see actually how how poverty and the issue of poverty is is something that has um really just just i don't even know what the word is just um kind of is perpetuated over time um which i think also then shows how a christmas carol has relevance to to students today even though it's written in the 19th century no i'd certainly agree that i'm gonna i'm gonna go and find those those uh those maps that you mentioned because i have been the same so so fascinating because as Nate says victorian victorian times are incredibly fascinating and love what you mentioned there about how over time, poverty is, is completely perpetuated, and and it's so relevant to to students. I mean, the story it, it will it really does stand the test of time. And um, thank you for mentioning that. And I I love this next question, Nikki. This is an absolute cracker. So thank you for this one. Um, what can the the subject discipline of English learn from subjects such as history and geography and framing their lesson sequence around a big question as you frame the chapters in your book? I think uh, certainly for me, you know, I've I've tried to do a lot of research around around big questions. There's not really much out there, I feel. Um, and when I first started kind of using big questions in my in my lessons, um, I use them very much how we use them in the book. Actually, it was the focus of the lesson. Um, so, uh, yeah, for example, if we're doing a, a, a lesson on Marley, it would be who is Marley's ghost? Why does Marley's ghost appear to Scrooge? Um, and my thinking was that students would either be able to answer that question by the time they left the lesson or they wouldn't. And then that would kind of tell me how much they'd, they'd learn. Um, as I've done more research around big questions, as, as more people are beginning to use them, my, my feeling around them has really changed. Now, we call them big questions in the book, but for me, 
now. I think big questions are questions that are, are more kind of um, philo- uh, philosophical, um, questions that um, really make students think hard. So, so not necessarily questions that are just testing for knowledge, but questions that will allow students to apply that knowledge to different contexts. Um, so, for example, in the introduction of the book, um, we... Um, kind of propose five big questions instead of um, however many chapters there are, 17, 18, um, which for me are are now more key lesson questions, I suppose. So something a bit more uh, philosophical, stave one, we've we've talked about um, are humans conditioned to find change threatening because they can talk about Scrooge, they can talk about the change that he is forced to endure, but also that's a question they can take with them into other contexts, into other lessons, which is what I kind of find fascinating about it. We've talked about in stave two, to what extent does our past dictate who we are? Um, stave three, can ignorance ever be justified? Stave four, why does humanity struggle to comprehend its own mortality? And they just sound bigger, don't they? <laughs> then who is Marley's ghost? Um, and so that, that for me is, is kind of the direction that we've, we've gone with, with big questions, questions that are really making students think and questions that they take forward with them i i completely appreciate i've just ignored the history geography element of that question um perhaps amy's got got something she could say around that <laughs> thanks for that um so yeah, i just I mean, dropped you in it there <laughs> <laughs> that's fine i think um we have to go back to christine council don't we she, she's sort of the pioneer and a history teacher um of, of big questions and i really liked what she said about how big questions need to be kind of visible across a sequence of lessons and referred to constantly because that's how we kind of interrogate the um, the sequencing of our curriculum. And that's definitely something that, that I've taken from kind of history and geography and, and applied to what we do in English. And I completely agree with what Stuart said. So I think there's absolutely a place for those questions like who is Marley's ghost or actually probably more specifically like who is Scrooge? So who is Scrooge is the first big question for chapter one. Um but actually the power of that question isn't in just looking at it within the context of chapter one of the book, but it's about developing that as their learning continues. A question like who is Scrooge is a really good marker of what knowledge is secure over time because they can understand Scrooge in the context we see him at the start of stave one of A Christmas Carol, but actually their view has developed and changed as we get further through the novella. So I think it's it's important that we do revisit them and we take that chance to to rethink about it. But I also completely agree with Stuart about those bigger philosophical ideas. Um, I think my favourite of them is probably our stave two question, which is to what extent does our past dictate who we are? Because far beyond the reaches of A Christmas Carol, that really helps us learn more about ourselves and, and help students really interrogate what their place is in the wider world, what their role is. I think that's one of the most powerful things about teaching English is the fact that they... Um, we can enable students to do that and think about their their place in wider society. And those sorts of questions become immediately bigger and more vast than any study could ever be of any one text at any one particular moment in any kind of one particular way. And, and instead, I don't think this is too lofty an idea, but I think that those sorts of big questions help students interrogate what it actually means to be human and like what a gift that is to be able to explore that with with students through their their years at school. Absolutely. And that's why I love our subject so much, because you can do that with English. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mary Myatt mentions um, this strategy that's included within the book um, in her introduction. Um, And it's the strategy of read, reread and read again. 
Um, this is a means of chaperoning students through Dickens's complex vocabulary. Can you just explain to us a little bit what it's about and how um, you might recommend teachers use this idea? Yeah, so read, reread, and read again is really an amalgamation of of research, I suppose, into um, helping students access complex texts. Um, so the idea really is that we pre-teach what we read before we read it. Um, so, for example, um, what we would do is um, maybe pick out from the section that we're going to read some words that we think students are going to find particularly challenging um, when they encounter it in the text for the first time. Um, and we will pre-teach that vocabulary. So we'll introduce them to the word, we'll introduce them to a student-friendly definition. Um, and what we'll do is we'll complete some activities around that word. So it might be... Um, that we get students to turn the word into a quick image. Um, it might be that we get students to use the word in a sentence, just, you know, activities that are going to familiarise themselves, uh, familiarise them with it. Um, I've started saying to my classes, uh, you know, what other texts have we studied throughout our time at high school that you could connect to these words? They can see the words in different contexts. Um, and once they're familiarised with the words, what I'll do is put up... Um, the extract that I find, think they're going to find particularly challenging on the board and the words that we have pre-taught are highlighted. Um, and I will read the extract and I'll read those, those words with it. Um, and that's the read part. And then what I'll do is when I hit a word that we have pre-taught, we'll, we'll re-read uh, re it. So for example, if we look at um, the first part of A Christmas Carol, and it says, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman. Now, clergyman is a word that I might have highlighted. And the student-friendly definition I might have given before would be a person with a religious duty, especially in Christianity. So when I read that bit, I'm going to say to students, right, let's just stop there. What did the uh, word clergyman mean? Can anyone remind me what that meant? And hopefully a student is, is going to remember that definition and say, oh, it's a person with a religious duty. So what I'm then going to do is I'm going to reread that part of the text, but I'm going to replace the word and put the definition in there instead. So it might say something like the register of his burial was, uh, was signed by the person with a religious duty. Um, and then immediately afterwards, I'm going to read it again as it was with the, with the correct word in. Um, and the reason that we do that is to um, repeat the words that students will be unfamiliar with so they um, they can kind of hear it, they can hear how it's used, they can then begin to use it themselves. Um, but I think also, particularly with 19th century literature, you know, you've got this language which um, for some students can be very, very challenging to navigate. Um, and it just allows them access into the text without giving them what uh, Mary Myatt describes as a diminished diet, um, a, a kind of translated version of that text as such. So the process itself is is very quick, I suppose. The We read it, the reread and read again is, the reread is the definition, the read again is read it again with the correct word in. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't do that for the whole book as such, because otherwise we'd, <laughs> we'd never get through the whole thing. But particularly kind of just pre-selecting those extracts that I think students are going to find particularly challenging to, to encounter. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the purpose of it. Um, and it, it, it works really well for those students who, who do struggle with, with that more challenging language. Yeah, I think for, for, for the majority of the staves, you pick about five or six kind of key words. I think that's just right. It's just enough. Um, with that in mind, then, would you say that you're against a cold read of a text? Um, me, personally, 
I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with cold reads, actually. Um, for me, it depends on what the text is. Um, I'll always do a cold read of something like an Inspector Calls um, because it's very, very short. It's very snappy. I don't want to lose that momentum. Um, for A Christmas Carol, I think sometimes it can be easy to be bogged down. So it might be that I'll do a cold read of a section that I don't think is going to be particularly challenging, but I do want my students to follow along with those words. So, um, you know, I know that teachers that really advocate for cold reads of everything, and that's great, and that that works for them. Just purely, I don't know, I guess, I, I don't know, just the way that I, I teach, I, I just am quite picky with, with the text that I cold read. Um, yeah, but that's that's just me. I completely agree. I think it's very context-specific and dependent on how the curriculum is structured um, at a particular school, how a certain group is responding to the text. Um, so same as Stuart, I have, again, like a love-hate relationship. Um, I advocate it, advocate for it in certain circumstances, but not all. And I think part of that is because with some stories, like with, I think Macbeth is a really good example of this. I really love working with students as that story gradually unfolds over time. And, you know, I love when we get to the, the banquet scene and we see Banquo's ghost. And the fact that it's taken us some time to get there and we've thought really carefully about it, because I think that scene has so much more impact when we reach it, having thought about it more deeply as we've gone along, rather than cold reading through to that point, perhaps missing some of the richness of that discussion. So, yeah, it's kind of, a, I guess, horses for courses. What works in, in one context won't work in another. One year I might do a cold read with an inspector calls and the next year I won't. Depends on the class that I'm teaching. Yeah, I love I think- that. Good. Go, go ahead, Nikki. Sorry, I would agree with that with an inspector calls. I think it was it's perfect for for such. Um, but there's just so much with texts like Christmas Carol and especially with Macbeth, um, as we saw in the previous Ready to Teach. It's just loaded with with things that are so rich that you just can't you can't not have that opportunity to discuss it there in the moment of the lesson. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. I was just trying to be a little bit controversial with that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love it, love a little bit, but it must be so hard for you guys, as English teachers, to decide which parts to to please excuse me, to cold read and which parts to go deep deeper on. It must be such a challenging choice. Um, can you speak to how you come to those sort of decisions on which parts of the parts of the text to to read over again and again and introduce? Is it is it more important when there's really complex vocabulary, or is it more important when the message that you're trying to deliver through the text is more more important? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think for me, I think it's a bit of both actually. Um, you know, certainly when I've, I mean, I've tried a cold read of A Christmas Carol before um, a couple of times. And for me, I found that, you know, we did the cold read. And then when we went to look back at specific extracts, I found as if I was just almost like teaching it again and, and going through what things meant again, which kind of suggests to me that maybe they didn't quite pick up what I wanted them to pick up from a cold read in terms of like the characters and plot. Um, so that's, you know, I, I haven't kind of got rid of the the idea of a cold read completely but when I do decide I think it's I think it's a bit of both I think it's a is the vocabulary challenging are they going to follow it along with with kind of minimal intervention um and is this a particularly important part of the text um and if so does that need slightly kind of a slightly longer time spent on it than than just reading it checking they've understood it and then moving on Thank you. Amy, is that similar to how you approach it? Yeah, it is. It's really, that's really made me ponder. That's a really good question because 
I was thinking about this in specific reference to a Christmas carol. I think when you have a class who have a understanding as a group on a class level of the kind of main beats of the story, they know there's a man who hates Christmas, he's visited by some ghosts and ends up as a relatively decent chap by the end. Um, I don't think a cold read is necessarily very helpful there. But I think if you do have a class who just don't have that that understanding of just the beats of the story, a cold read could probably be quite useful because it's an understanding the shape of the whole story that I think we can then do that kind of warm read, if you like, and it be more meaningful because the students, even only roughly, know where we're heading by the end of the novella. Yeah. I think also... Oh, sorry. I was just going to jump in there um, because also I think we talk about a cold read and we just dive in and, and we read it. Um, but actually, we I think we do have to think about the students in front of us as well. You know, Amy writes a really, really good bit in the introduction about how, you know, there is we might be teaching students for which Christmas isn't a part of their cultural heritage. And so we might actually need to to kind of complete some work around kind of almost what Christmas is, what Christmas means um, for those students to then understand what is going to happen in the story as well. So I think that's kind of what we also mean when we mean kind of class specific and, and look at your class because so many students are going to come in with different voices, different um, backgrounds um, that can 100% be utilised in the lessons, but we just need to be very aware of, of people's starting points, I suppose. So it's interesting you mentioned, mentioned culture there because I'm going to assume that we're all four people that have were grown up in, in Britain. So Christmas is very much part of our culture, but it's a great point you make. We've got a lot of students that might not be part of our culture. And it's great that you're, you're mentioning there, it depends on the student, even going back to what you said about if the students are well-versed in the Christmas carol, then you don't need to kind of give it that code. But if they don't have an, a, an idea, I think you mentioned the beats of the story. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to add that to my vocabulary. Um, if they don't have that recognition of the beach, the story, then they need to be able to go through it all. Is that something you consider as well, Nikki, when you're teaching in, in your English lessons? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just with, I was just as, you know, the conversation was going there, I was making comparisons in my head, actually, to how cold read, cold reads, warm reads, cold calling and we've we started using this phrase warm calling um just because of how sometimes our students do need kind of warming up and as a teacher you think right I'm going to do some cold calling here and do some check checking for understanding with specific students and sometimes it it actually doesn't work and they haven't kind of got what you wanted them to get out of the the piece of work you've been doing um so that kind of warming up and that preparation um there's certainly you know an, a need for that and I think especially with a text that is so rich and that is what for me ready to teach has kind of proven I knew it was rich to start with but the things that I've kind of uncovered in reading this just I was just scanning through my list just about um things like funeral customs um in Victorian England um the fact that they would hire mourners um bells morning dress loads of things we're just scanning down the list thinking you know i wouldn't know about that and i would just completely kind of gloss over it almost in in studying that without this text and it was the same with macbeth as well i was chatting to a colleague today actually we've completely transformed how we teach macbeth based on that book and we're excited to you know do that again with the christmas carol um we are massive geeks and we love it but it's completely <laughs> transformed how we teach and deliver these texts and now 
a cold read of a Christmas Carol. Absolutely not. I would, I would never do that. Like I say, I think that it's just so rich, um, that you need to spend that time thinking about and pondering on some of the, the kind of context and the ideas and the themes that, that arise from, from the text. Absolutely. I'm not sure if I Thanks. answered your question there. I feel like I went off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's why we're here. Thank you so much. Um, so bring us back. Um, what are the, the pre-reading activities you suggest in getting students to appreciate Dickens' intentions? Is asking them what they would show Scrooge if they had a choice. If it was your choice, what one thing would you show Scrooge? So tough. It's so tough, even though we're obviously advocating for asking students to do the same. I know there's something hypocritical in that. Um <laughs> I think for me, I think this might be a cheat answer, but I think it would be the Cratchits because I think they're the one thread who run through the novella who really humanise Scrooge. Some of the most humanising moments he has all the way through are the moments where he's confronted with Tiny Tim and the living conditions of the Cratchits. And I think perhaps there's potentially this kind of echo um, in Tiny Tim of who Scrooge might have been, who he could have been, Um had he been loved rather than excluded, there's this real theme that runs through in terms of, you know, Scrooge having been not massively loved as a child. He doesn't feel loved or included by his family. He he loses the one person who meant a lot to him and his sister, Little Fan. Um, so I think he sees kind of this alternate reality. If he'd been loved and cherished, he could have turned into this, you know, this this boy like Tiny Tim. So I think it's the life that Scrooge might have had. And I think given that really visceral response he has to seeing his younger self, you know, that is that first moment of, of any kind of softness in Scrooge is that line. And it always catches in my throat when I read it. It's the, um, the, the, the ghost of Christmas past says that there's a, there's a child left at school at Christmas on their own. And the line is um, Scrooge said he knew it and he sobbed. And it's that moment um, that I think really creates a change in him. And I think combining that with the Cratchits and what life might have been and, and how he can support, Tiny Tim to live an even better life is, yeah, that would be the one for me, I think. I don't know about you, Stuart. Oh, I I found this question really hard, actually. Um, I don't know, I'm going to go for something a bit more abstract. I don't know, something, I show him a bit of empathy, a bit of sympathy. Um, maybe not necessarily in terms of me giving him empathy or sympathy, but but as in, like, you know, just that these things exist in the world. Um, you know, it's it's... It's I, I find it hard with Scrooge actually because there is a there is a we talk in the book about this how there's a, a twisted logic almost to to why he is the way that he is, um, and the one bit that always comes to mind is is right at the beginning when he's talking to Fred and he says um, he says why did you get married and Fred replies because I fell in love and, and and Scrooge repeats it and I think the the line in the book is something like um as if it was the only thing more ridiculous than a than a merry Christmas um and you know that to me kind of shows that that Scrooge has never felt that love has never been able to give that love to anyone but the 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 logic there is that actually there is a surplus population um society can't afford to almost look after itself and so Fred getting married in Scrooge's eyes is is going to maybe result in children and if it results in children then actually Fred is someone who is contributing to that surplus population and and is um certainly not helping to fix society I suppose in inverted commas in the way that Scrooge feels that it should be fixed um but 
you know, if he just has a bit of sympathy and a bit of empathy um, for other people, then I think actually, well, there would a there wouldn't be a story to tell. Um, but but b I think it it shows that. I don't really know where I'm going with this, actually. I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. I just think those are two qualities that he, that he needs to be uh, that he needs to be shown and and that he needs to appreciate their value, I suppose. So I think that's what I would what I would show him. Sorry, that was a really what long tangent. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, Nikki, what about you? What would you show Scrooge? Um mine would be um with the ghost of Christmas yet to come when um they're in old Joe's shop and um, they've basically gone back to his um, his room, his apartment, and they've taken the curtains from the bed and, um, you know, the shirt from his back um, as he lays there dead. Um, just just to kind of see, you know, that is, that is what they value. That's what they've taken from you, not any of the things that you should take from a life and from somebody who's had a a positive influence and a loving and warm influence on, on a person. Um, and how, you know, he, he did have a responsibility to, to contribute to society beyond paying his taxes, um, for the workhouses. Um, that, that would be, that would be what I would show him. Just that, that, stave in itself is my favorite stave because of the kind of shock and you know teaching it to students and they they will say <gasps> as they realize um some of them not always as quick to kind of catch on that that is scrooge um scrooge's body and that is his grave um so just the reaction that you get from students when you teach that stave as well as the things that he's shown by the ghost um of Christmas yet to come and obviously the fact that he's he's completely mute he's silent just adds to that kind of very eerie um atmosphere when when reading the book so yeah that would be my choice I really like that bit actually because that's especially with the um the idea that all they take from his life his kind of material possessions things they can sell on um and then I really like how that's almost juxtaposed with the idea of um Tiny Tim's death and the fact that um Tiny Tim has this whole family that are left kind of you know in the world to mourn him but Scrooge has no one and and it's I really like that kind of cold callous um action of them just um plundering all of his possessions Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh yeah, Tiny Tim's death. And, and actually, I, I liked what you said there about the um, t- what they take from a life because they haven't taken anything from Scrooge's life apart from his material possessions. But the fact that what the Cratchits take from Tiny Tim and, and what they've learned from him, even though he's just this small child and, and what they take from his life, I really like the comparison there. Yeah, and students are certainly my students that have taught in the past. They're always so they they make they take so much out of the comparisons of the graves as well, and how Tiny Tim's grave is green and you know well cared for, etc. And Scrooge is is the opposite of that, and they love making that comparison, um, and they love to talk about that, uh, which is one of the reasons why I, I really I really enjoy reading and teaching that stave definitely. Okay, um, that brings us to our last question um, to do with the Christmas Carol. We've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but um, the text was written in 1843, over 175 years ago. What links can we make to modern British society for our students, do you think? Love this question. Um, I think so many. We um, we write in the conclusion about, uh, we talk about the 
research into the the rise in the use of food banks and I think actually since we finished writing the cost of living crisis is having a, such an enormous impact on all of the families that we all work with day in day out and for me there's that line in A Christmas Carol um, where Dickens writes about we ought to care for one another um, as if and I'm going to misquote this and I apologise but um, as if we were all if we all really were fellow passengers to the grave and, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And that idea of the compassion and care and support that we ought to provide to everyone in society, I think for me, is like the biggest link into modern British society. Yeah, I mean, I've just got the um, that bit open in the book, actually, Amy, where we talk about the, um, the use of food banks. Um, and we've written in here... Uh, these are statistics from the Trussell Trust, um, Trussell Trust UK, um, that sent out a record 2.5 million food bank parcels to those in crisis in the 2020-21 financial year, um, which was a 33% increase on the year before. And 980,000 of those went to, to children. And I think that really resonates, especially when you read A Christmas Carol, because Dickens prizes childhood and he prizes what it means to be a child. Um, and you see a lot in the, in the book, um, these adults that play childish games because Dickens prizes that idea of innocence and purity and and just being a child um so much um for me I've got um I've got a quote here that we we it's pretty much the last thing that's in the book and it's um it's it's a letter that Dickens wrote to his friends he wrote it in 1858 so he wrote it after a carol um but he wrote in that um in that letter, he said, everything that happens, everybody that comes near, every breath of human interest shows beyond any mistake that you can't shut out the world, that you are in it to be of it, that you get yourself into a false position the moment you try to sever yourself from it, um, that you must mingle with it and make the best of it and make the best of yourself into the bargain. And I think that for me is the message of, of the carol, is you can't sever yourself from society. And I think particularly in a post-COVID world, that has a lot to resonate. You know, we we spent a year and a half with our doors closed, um, not inviting anyone in. We felt we, we spent a year and a half isolated. And, you know, we are very much feeling the repercussions of COVID. Um, the young people that are in front of us every day are, are certainly feeling the repercussions of COVID. And I think actually just that idea of of not severing yourself from society and and realising that you're part of it and and you have something to offer it. Um, I think that's that's what resonates the most for me in terms of what I think the text can offer students today. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for the, for the questions, Nikki. I really, really, really appreciate that. And I've thoroughly enjoyed being a listener on this fantastic discussion and, and, and sharing in your knowledge. We've now come to the end of the interview section. We're going to dive into the quickfire questions but before we get to that can you please share with the listeners where they can go and buy your book and also can you highlight them to any blogs that you write and your twitter handles please of course yeah so the book is um available uh directly from john cat um via their website uh it is available via amazon waterstones blackwells any of those kinds of major um retailers uh have it ready to send out um in terms of blogs and twitter handles so i tweet at teach owls and i do have a blog um which is thingsshetaught.wordpress.com uh, my twitter handle is um at sprite2 and my blog is uh an english teacher's notebook 
uh, .blogspot.com or, or something like that. If you go to the Twitter handle, it's linked under there, so you'll be able to find it easily. Right, thank you so much. We're now going into the, the quick fire round, three questions that I ask every guest that appear on the podcast. So how we'll do it is if, um, Nikki, if I ask the first and third question and you ask the second question, yeah. Um, and then if we go alphabetical, so if we ask the question, then if Amy, if you answer first, and Stuart, if you follow up with your response, and then we'll move on to the second question. Are you ready for this? Ready, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> right. Thank you. So first question is, what are you reading currently? Um, so I have two books on the go at the moment. Um, for fun, I'm reading The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon, which is brilliant and I'm loving it. Um a good sort of TikTok uh, recommendation. And uh, in fact, we're on a Zoom call at the moment. And I can see a copy of it on Stuart's bookshelf just behind him. Uh, and then yeah. for work, I'm reading Sam Strickland's The Behaviour Manual, which I think is an absolute triumph. Okay, this is creepy because I'm reading The Bone Season by Samantha Shannon, which I think we recommended <laughs> the two books to each other. Yeah, and I'm also reading The Behaviour Manual by Sam Strickland <laughs> for work. So, and and uh, Closing the Writing Gap by Alex Quigley. I've got two on the go. Okay. Uh, what is your current professional development focus? Great question. Mine is quite specifically English at the moment, and it's all around how we can effectively teach grammar. Um, I think it's something that English teachers, lots of us have literature degrees, so grappling with, with grammar is really interesting and important. And I'm really looking forward to um, Jennifer Webb and Marcello um, Giovanelli's new book, Central Grammar, is coming out soon, which I'm pumped for, really excited. Um, mine is uh, kind of teaching um, writing, close, well, kind of Alex's title, closing that gap in writing post-COVID, um, and also uh, kind of moving into uh, senior leadership, because that's, uh, I've yeah, I'm an assistant principal next year, so reading all of the leadership books that I can. Oh, excellent. Congratulations on becoming a, an assistant principal. That will surely be a fantastic job. And I love that I went to see... Marcello Giovanelli and Jennifer Webb at Research in Warrington and I was absolutely blown away by what they say in grammar is not something that um, I focus on a lot in my job but it's definitely opened my eyes to um, explore that a little bit more. So thank you so much for sharing. The final question for you is what do you love most about being a teacher? Everything, everything about it. It's the best and hardest and most brilliant job in the entire world but I think if I had to boil it down I'd say as an English teacher being able to share just brilliant stories with young people and and getting their reactions to it and helping them make those first tentative steps as they think about um, themselves as valid contributors to the discussion around literature I think it's a real gift to be able to give young people. Yeah very similar um, I love working with young people um, they can be they can be brilliant. They can be frustrating, but they will always put a smile on your face. Um, so I love that. Um, I love the fact that every day is different. I love the fact that every day is is um, a challenge, um, and I love learning new things as well, um, which I can then pass on to to students. Thank you, and Nikki. I'd like you to answer that question as well, if if you if you want to. Um, what do you love most about being a teacher? Um, I would echo what Stuart just said there um, about the love of learning and I uh, am very much you know I'm teaching students um, but I feel like I never ever stop learning um, and as a self-confessed 
absolute massive geek. I just love that, that there's always things out there to tap into, people to listen to, things to watch, things to read. Um, you are partly to blame as well, Darren, for my to be read pile that is just growing and growing and growing with recommendations. Um, but I, I love learning and just trying to be better um, and be more effective uh, at what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, the learning, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, thank you so much to Stuart and Amy for coming on Becoming Educated Tonight in our first English subject specific episode. Thank you so, so much for sharing with us your your knowledge, wisdom and the love of your job. Oh, thank, thank you, you so for having, having us. Having We've us. really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And, thank you. And thank you so much to Nikki for, for um, coming up with this, this idea, um, coming up with all the questions. Some of them were absolutely fantastic. Um, and thank you so much for co-hosting with me thank you thank you for having me thank you so much for listening to becoming educated before you go can i ask for a few things that will only take a minute i'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears if you want to support the podcast you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash dn leslie and finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag BecomingEducated and tag me on Twitter at DNLesson. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.